1: We're back for hour two six oh six. I'm Randy Corcoran, your pumped up purveyor of principled passionate patriotism, and so glad to have you here. Phone lines have been hot. Appreciate that. People are asking about the December Arapaho Tea Party meeting. There will be none. But we are having a Christmas party on December seventh at a different location. And it's a big, but we're getting—I think we're getting pretty close. If you're interested, Arapaho Tea Party at Gmail dot com. Arapaho Tea Party at Gmail dot com. Don't forget Backbone Radio Sunday nights from four to seven. Uh, what a great way to wrap up the weekend and kick off the. Uh, Matt Dunn and I sort of hold down the. Uh, The side of the right that helps push back against the nonstop mainstream narratives that you're pummeled with day after day, everywhere that you turn around. And last thing, as you know, the voting has started in Georgia. My dear friend Jenny Beth Martin and Tea Party Patriots have put together a scholarship program with plane tickets and hotel rooms available for people still able to come out to Georgia right away. And get to work and to find out more about that or apply or figure out what you can do from home, help at com, help at GAPolls.com. And I know phone lines are lighting up, but really excited about talking to my friend, Joel Gilbert, filmmaker, documentarian, haven't seen him in a while. Last time we were together, it was great meals, great conversation. And he was telling me about a project that he was working on, which has come to fruition uh, we had him on when it debuted, the documentary, Michelle Obama, 2024, and Joel uh, continues to see everything unfolding, just as he expected to place Michelle Obama in the Democrat nomination for president in 2024. And he's going to tell us how and why when he joins us right now. Joel, good evening, sir.
2: OK, great to be back. Thank you, Randy.
1: Better believe it. Uh, obviously some of your bigger hits, Trayvon hoax and um, dreams from my real father. Wonderful. But right now, everything is all about 2024 now that we're past these midterms. So talk to me.
2: Well, I think uh, it's been pretty clear even since the summer, there was a tremendous amount of talk that all the Democrats are dissatisfied with Joe Biden. They think uh, he's too old. He's uh not somebody that can carry the party into 2024 when he'll be 82 years old and serve until he's 86. They're all saying that he's a liability. Now, that's pretty astonishing for someone that got 81 million votes who just two years ago was the most popular politician ever in the history of the country. So that tells you something about, uh, you know, did he really get 81 million votes from these people that don't want him around? Yeah, wink, wink. Uh, yeah so uh it's it's pretty clear I think Biden is pretty much still saying he's keeping up the ruse for a couple more months. He doesn't want to be a lame duck yet uh but it's clear that the democrat party is does not want him to be the uh the uh, standard bearer. The democrat party has turned its leadership roles over to uh non white non males pretty much uh if you're a female non white african american anything that's not uh, a white male, that's the direction they're going. And uh, it's clear, I think, and I set out the case in Michelle Obama 2024, it's both a film. You can watch it on SalemNow.com, and it's also a book, on uh, which you can get on Amazon.com. And uh, Michelle actually just came out a few weeks ago, right after the midterms. She came out with her new book called The Light We Carry, uh, and she's currently on a book tour of the country going through these stadiums, uh, events where people come out and she's asked questions by a celebrity interviewer. So I'm absolutely convinced she's just been building up her base, core voting group, which is women and minorities. And that's who she's appealing to with this new book and with the book tour. And I think uh, she's probably going to play hard to get, but I think we'll probably see her announce for president sometime After uh, Biden uh, decides that he's not running.
1: I watched uh, Dick Morris being interviewed on uh, Newsmax, I think, and somebody brought up the name of Michelle Obama. And he 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 sort of scoffed at the idea and said, no, no, she's not running. If she was going to, she would have in twenty twenty. And uh, and said no way. He's convinced Hillary is coming back for the rematch. So, what would you tell Dick Morris if he was on the other side of this conversation?
2: Yeah, look, Dick Morris is pretty much obsessed with Hillary Clinton. He's been obsessed with her for thirty years, and he always says that she's always hanging around, and he's always got something to say about her. But Hillary Clinton uh, has no support in the party. She's she's been the nominee. She's lost. Uh, She clearly has said she's not running. She doesn't have a base of support. She's an older white lady at this point. So Dick Morris is just wrong. Michelle Obama is playing all her cards just right. She's been on social media developing her audience of kind of that Oprah Winfrey crowd. She's working on women. She's working on developing minorities. Just look at her Twitter account. It's all political or it's working on developing constituent groups. Uh, So Michelle is pretty much playing her cards with this second autobiography. It's called The Light We Carry. It's kind of like a ruse. It sounds like it's a self-help book, but I read the book, and it was actually uh, written by the same ghostwriter who wrote her best-selling autobiography called Becoming. And this book is simply a second autobiography. It just goes through all her personal life stories chronologically. It gives one or two life lessons but it's really just a a repositioning of Michelle because the becoming world tour that went to 35 stadiums, got cut short by COVID. She wanted to continue it for another year or so. So this is a way to get her back out there relating to her audience, uh, keeping her name in the news. And I think she's going to, you know, reluctantly say, well, you know, you know, I didn't want to run for president, but uh, you know, I love this country and I love your children. So I'm going to, Consider it and i'm going to form a committee. I think that's the way she's going And dick morris just uh, doesn't get what she's up to. I've been following the obamas for 10 years and michelle Very clearly you've seen in my film. She says uh, Barack and I don't do anything incidentally. There's always a strategy And I think michelle obama is carrying out her strategy very cleverly behind the scenes She's actually campaigning for president right now and no one realizes it
1: my wife and I were uh Privilege to get an early copy of Michelle Obama 2024 uh, before it was released. And so we've gotten to see the different ways in which you point out that the Michelle Obama life story, much like her husband, is really a fraud. So tease sure. people a little bit. Let them know what they uh, what they would learn if they spend some time at uh, at Salem. What's our website for that? Salem now dot com. Salem dot com. Yeah.
2: Well, first of all, the look- Michelle is following the exact same formula that Barack did to to become president. Barack wrote a best-selling autobiography called Dreams from My Father. Michelle wrote Becoming, her life story, which is pretty much a political document, and now she's got the second autobiography. Barack was the keynote speaker for John Kerry. The keynote speaker is the person that introduces the candidate at the convention that they typically think that person will be the nominee at the next convention, which Barack was. Sure enough, Michelle Obama was the keynote speaker that introduced joe biden and lastly barack actually had a voter registration organization in chicago called project vote back in the 90s michelle started a uh, voter registration organization called when we all vote she's out there all the time promoting this thing so she's just doing exactly what barack did and the life story that michelle tells in her autobiographies which are two of them now is pretty much where she's a victim, where she's a victim of racial discrimination. She overcomes all these problems. One of the stories, her signature race story, which she's been telling for 15 years in different ways, is that when she was going to this exclusive high school, she says the high school counselor told her she wasn't Princeton material and you're black and you shouldn't think you're going to get into Princeton. Well, I found out from my research that the school counselor was actually a black lady named Nan King who uh, knew Michelle for years. So the whole story Michelle tells about being a racial victim is complete nonsense. She grew up in a political family. Her father was a precinct captain working for Richard Daly for the Chicago machine. Michelle was best friends with Santita Jackson, Jesse Jackson's daughter. She kind of grew up in his house when he was running for president. So Michelle's a very political person from a young age. She was class treasurer. She went to dance classes. She had a very privileged childhood. But the stories you'll see in my film, we find out that Michelle, number one, she's not even from the south side of Chicago. She's from South Shore. Yeah, her
1: her story of coming out of the hood is a complete joke, and your film lays that bare.
2: Right. So all that story of her struggling and overcoming all these obstacles. In fact, Michelle writes about... And I've got her on tape. It's in the film. She talks about growing up, being afraid of black people. She said, "I was afraid to go out of my house. They would threaten to beat her up. She did get beat up because Michelle got accused of acting white, which means you have an attitude, you think you're better than everybody else. She was accused of, of uh, uh, you know, and they they called her an Oreo, meaning you're white on the inside, black on the outside, but you're really a white girl on the inside. So Michelle." spent her youth running away from the black community. Instead of going to a black high school right next to her house, she went to Whitney Young an hour and a half away to be with white kids. She went to Princeton and Harvard. She got a job working for the mayor of Chicago, working with Valerie Jarrett in the development department. And the claim to fame is she made about 20,000 black people homeless. She knocked down the projects called Cabrini-Green
1: yeah it's and then she that was the you know, most all, probably disturbing and you know not in a sort of a visceral sense, but just in in the lies and the damage that a person like her does to uh i guess you could say her you know her own um her own you know, michelle her own michelle, race her, her own, own f- her own community her, her own, own community, community
2: yeah well, having proven her callousness working for the mayor, she was then hired by the University of Chicago Medical Center. And her job was to get rid of the Southsiders who were coming into the emergency room and denying them health care. She would actually put them in these vans and dump them at these crappy neighborhood clinics.
1: Yeah, and the strip so malls. Michelle,
2: yeah, she always worked for white liberal elites to be the front man to take rights, to take homes, to take health care away from black people. So Michelle, I show in the film, in the book, she spent her childhood and her working career running away from black people, Uh, sabotaging their homes, taking away their health care. And so what she's doing now with her book and her book tour, she's trying desperately to get black people and black women on her side because she doesn't really have any connection to the black community. She didn't grow up with the black community. Her friends were all white. She married a biracial man. She worked for white people. She really has a problem with the black community, much like Barack. She's not really a part of it and never was. So that's part of the ruse. She's pretending to be part of the black community. She's pretending to have a lot in common with women. And uh, you can see a completely different story when you watch the film or read the book.
1: Yeah, the movie lays it bare. You can watch the movie at SalemNow.com. The book, Michelle Obama 2024, available at Amazon and elsewhere. Talking with filmmaker Joel Gilbert. One last question came from a texter, Joel. And they asked, if, uh, what if Gavin Newsom gets placed into contention?
2: Look, no one has a shot against Michelle. Gavin Newsom is not even that popular in California. He's not a a politician that has any, uh, you know, massive popularity. Michelle is the most popular person on the planet. As soon as she announces, everyone else will drop out. or even if they did run, they'd have no chance. So Michelle is uh, setting herself up nicely to to get the nomination, and she's definitely – uh, the, preparing for it for many, many years under the radar. And uh, I think Democrats are going to be very, very happy when, when she does announce her president.
1: Just checked on Twitter. Gavin Newsom, 2 million followers. Michelle Obama, 22-plus million followers. And an interesting final text. Well, let's make this the final, final question. Right now, okay. Joe Biden is president in name only. He's being handled by others behind the scenes. Will those handlers give up that power to let Michelle run?
2: Uh, Michelle Obama is very much uh, A person who's never had an original thought She simply repeats whatever The party is saying Whatever other people are saying She kind of goes with the program So uh, the globalists And those writing joe biden's teleprompter are going to have no problem with Michelle obama she's down for the program she doesn't have any original ideas of her own and she wants to go with that leftist program that she's pushed all her life by the way she has a hundred million social media followers if you include instagram sure. facebook she just got huge mega power with the media and uh i don't know that the republicans have a way to deal with her yet
1: Joel, it's a great pleasure to hear from you and to talk to you, and uh, let's keep us posted. These next couple of years are going to go by awfully, awfully fast.
2: Okay, michelleobama24.com for the trailer and all the information on the website, michelleobama24.com.
1: God bless you, sir. Thank you. All right, thanks. Okay, that's my old buddy Joel Gilbert, filmmaker. Very, very good stuff. Uh, Another texter, Gavin Newsom has announced he is not running. He is 100% behind Joe. I'll tell you what, if Michelle gets in, knowing that, you know, Barack is is, uh, sleeping in the next room, if not the next next to her in bed. um, No, I I agree with Joel. Nobody's going to stand in the way of all of that. Good news for everybody. I was filling in for Stefan last week and had been called the week before, but I was out of town. So uh, because he's been gone for over two weeks and um, confirmed for sure. Stefan will be back in the saddle. Monday at his regular time, four PM, the return of Stefan Tubbs to the Stephan Tubbs Show. Glad my buddy is feeling better. Anyway, it's six twenty one, we're gonna take a break. And uh now with no distractions, when we come back, we will have a little fun with some of the Irene Kara tribute music. We will listen to the just evil, evil, evil doer, Joy Reed from MSLSD on Thanksgiving, and then play in its entirety in bite-sized pieces, rushes the truth about Thanksgiving. We'll do that before the show is over, so you've got to stay right there. I'm Randy Corcoran. at 710-K-N-U-S.
0: Text the studio directly on the 710-K-N-U-S app. Get it free at the App Store or Google Play.
1: All right. I really want to have a little more fun with Irene Cara today. She passed away at 63. No cause of death. Always makes me wonder if she was jabbed, is it a heart issue, a blood clot issue? Those seem to be the, the main things people are asking and texting about the died suddenly documentary, which is out there and exposes what, uh, what they're finding when they're doing autopsies, uh, these massive clots. And I, we, my wife and I have not watched the documentary yet to answer the texter's question, but I've heard it has been watched by, I don't know, eight or 900,000 people so far and something that I definitely want to see. But, I want to pay tribute to a what for me was a happier time. Music was just lighter and fun and made you want to dance and it just the things that were going on in the world at the time never quite felt that way. Do you remember this? Well, actually, let's do this one.
2: A little
1: duet with Andy Gibbs. I don't know. Just, it just makes me happy. Indulge me. I don't do that very often. And Irene Cara was not like a superstar that, you know, stuck in my mind or was hanging up on my wall or anything else. But when I, I don't know, when I heard of her passing, just another person dying too soon. And then I remembered some of those great songs. I just wanted to share them with you tonight. Uh, before we do some of this audio that uh, Luis Gonzalez worked so hard to put together tonight, there's a ton of it. I just want to finish my comments on this Save Colorado project. They they say they're getting together noon on Monday at the Colorado GOP office, 5950 South Willow. And they're they're just saying things that I am I think there's another side to the story. After publicly rejecting America first top line candidates, Republican chair Christy Burton Brown promised her center left candidates were the solution. Listen, Christy does not pick the candidates. She doesn't reject them. I criticized her the, the moment she came out and said Tina Peters shouldn't run just because it's not her place to do that. But as far as running an assembly, as far as supporting the candidates who were in the primary, all of them, and then supporting the candidates who emerged from the primary, I I just I don't know how you knock her. And listen, I'm not saying if she decides to run again, she shouldn't be challenged and let the best man or woman win. But I guess I wish that groups like this would contact me or somebody who's learned a lot over the last few years about how. All of this works because the energy needs to be on getting bonus members elected in January and and being ready to vote from the Central Committee for new leadership, if that's what you want in the Republican Party in March. And Christie hasn't announced yet that she's even whether she's even going to run. So I don't know. It just seems premature. And and listen, I encourage everybody who's active to to exercise their rights in whatever way makes them feel they're going to accomplish the most good. I'm not opposed to it. I just think there's a lot of misconceptions out there, misunderstandings and and not complete truth telling going on and and maybe not intentional. People only hear what they hear and therefore know what they hear. And um, I am all for continuing to build And restore the Republican platform to the prominence, prominence it deserves in the decisions that are made by leaders and candidates alike. Hundred percent for that. But, man, there's just so many different groups. and, And if, you know, if there's a if there is an actual press conference or whatever they're doing on November 30th and only a few people show up, then it just weakens that effort as well. So. We need a like a clearinghouse of organization to, for people to talk and and make decisions, and uh, and then use the time the line that exists to maximize our efforts. And uh, maybe I'll be surprised by Save Colorado Project. I don't know, but um, I guess we shall see. That's about all I need to say about that. And the polling, it's very very clear. Ronna McDaniel loses to both mike lindell the pillow guy and to congressman lee zeldin lee zeldin also beats mike lindell in head-to-head competition and um, we do know for sure that ronna mcdaniel is running again after saying she would only go for two terms she says that enough people on the rnc have encouraged her to just finish this out between now and the presidential election uh, that she's decided to run so I am guessing that that's a winning position for her. I have not come out in support of anybody. Haven't had my conversation with Lee Zeldin yet. And uh uh but I think these are all healthy healthy activities and healthy behaviors within a political party to actually be paying attention this early after a a successful but still heartbreaking election and uh and be looking ahead. And not just waiting till the day of or the week before to get active and aggressive. Those those things are very, very important and to me shows tremendous interest in and energy still behind the party, both on the state level and the national level. And that's very, very important. And I guess while I'm on this piece, the last thing I'll say about it is I am very excited. Next year is the opportunity to continue to purge these school boards of these woke leftists. Um, elect people to city councils and other off-year positions. That's a place where it doesn't take a ton of money to compete with the Democrats and bring our, our candidates home, to practice getting organized and getting out the votes on a much smaller schedule and continuing to vet those people who, you know, stand for the values that motivate you to be a Republican. That is an exciting opportunity and changing culture on the most local of levels is where it starts. And it's also the sort of stomping ground, the training ground, the breeding ground for our later on legislative candidates statewide and also, um, you know, moving on to the national level. That's where the best candidates come from. So the fact that the old guard Republican Party is saying, you know, we're never going to be back, don't know what we can do, we've got to get rid of Trump, don't talk about the election, all the same old garbage that led to pretty nasty defeats here in Colorado is an opportunity for people with a new idea, a new vision to come forward and really make a difference. And to me, that is very, very exciting. Okay, I am not going to run out of show without the opportunity to share with you the contrast between the 16, was it 1661, 1691 project and some of its followers like Joy Reed over there at MSLSD and the great... Late Rush Limbaugh when it comes to Thanksgiving. Here's Joy Reid.
3: For millions of Americans, it's a day of cherished traditions. And as Americans, we certainly value those traditions. But it's also important to unpack the myth of Thanksgiving. It is a holiday riddled with historical inaccuracies built on this myth that the indigenous welcomed their colonizers with open arms and ears of corn. A simplistic fairy tale interpretation of a 1621 encounter between indigenous tribes and English settlers that erases the genocide that followed. It's the truth Republicans want banned from our textbooks because here's the secret they want so desperately to keep. We are a country founded on violence. Our birth was violent. In 1619, a ship with more than 20 enslaved Africans landed in Virginia, ushering in two centuries of American slavery that left millions in chains or dead. And when those humans in bondage were finally free, a terrorist organization that was a card-carrying member of polite society, the Ku Klux Klan, picked up where the Civil War ended, using violence to maintain white supremacy.
1: Yeah, Ku Klux Klan founded by Democrats. The pictures of Joe Biden up there with Robert Byrd and Joy Reid straight out of the 1690 or 1619 project. That's what it is. 1619 project. Uh, Thanksgiving, the Indians were helpful to the early settlers. And what's so fascinating, and you'll hear this when we get through the Rush Limbaugh audio, is those settlers who came over here to escape tyranny the demand that they conform to a government mandated religion and uh worship and uh just you know being dictated to by a king brought them over here and the indians they were they were not a threat to the indians the indians taught them how to fish taught them how to uh farm and and raise food and and those who survived Uh, Well, I'll let Rush Limbaugh tell you the story because it is really, really good. The true story of Thanksgiving, the story of the
4: pilgrims, begins in the early part of the 17th century. The Church of England under King James I was persecuting anyone and everyone who did not recognize its absolute civil and spiritual authority. Those who challenged ecclesiastical authority and those who believed strongly in freedom of worship were hunted down, imprisoned, and sometimes executed for their beliefs a group of separatists first fled to holland and established a community after 11 years about 40 of them agreed to make a perilous journey to the new world where they would certainly face hardships but could live and worship god according to the dictates of their own consciences on august 1st 1620 the mayflower set sail it carried a total of 102 passengers, including 40 pilgrims led by William Bradford. On the journey, Bradford set up an agreement, a contract, that established just and equal laws for all members of the new community, irrespective of their religious beliefs.
1: The lesson that comes out of the rest of this story is so profound and phenomenal And something that we have to make sure that our kids and if you have adult children, their kids begin to understand because the left is going to continue with this garbage. The
3: Klan and its ilk are still active. And as Americans, we continue to choose violence. We are a country that chooses violence over and over again. There is no facet of American society that is untouched by it, as all the recent headlines remind us. But human violence is not just American. It is global while we we're preparing for Thanksgiving rockets rained down on Kyiv and several other Ukrainian cities knocking out power and water at least 3 people were killed in Russian airstrikes today including a 17-year-old girl less than 24 hours after officials said a newborn was killed by missiles that hit a maternity hospital our country is thankfully not being invaded by a foreign power as is Ukraine but it is not engaged in a and it's not engaged in a civil war like in Yemen and yet Our people are facing the same types of weapons that these people are facing in war.
1: Just unbelievable. How out of touch, how egregiously, um, I lost the word that I wanted to use, but I guess it started with a bad letter. It's just so bad. And, uh, I, I, I'm grateful that we have this recording of Rush Limbaugh to push back on this nonsense. This woman doesn't understand that what happened with America is that—and well, we'll learn this with Rush in just a minute—but what happened is that the once the settlers got past their initial socialist practices and learned the advantage of competition— and incentivizing people to do and be the best that they can. The new world grew so fast that uh, they did displace the indigenous people. They did displace the Indians. But tell me what society in world history, what country, what power? I mean, this is how worlds and, and frontiers are created And slavery, slavery was happening everywhere in the world. She never bothers to point out that slavery were the only country in the history of the world to kill six, seven hundred thousand of its own people to put a stop to that horrible, horrible pattern of conduct that men had practiced for centuries. We did it here, Joy Reid. We've got time for a little more rush. Where did the
4: revolutionary ideas expressed in the Mayflower Compact come from? They came from the Bible. The pilgrims were a people completely steeped in the lessons of the Old and New Testaments. They looked to the ancient Israelites for their example. And because of the biblical precedents set forth in Scripture, they never doubted that their experiment would work. But it was no pleasure cruise. The journey to the New World was a long and arduous one, and when the Pilgrims landed in New England in November, they found, according to Bradford's detailed journal, a cold, barren, desolate wilderness. There were no friends to greet them, he wrote. There were no houses to shelter them. There were no inns where they could refresh themselves, and the sacrifice that they had made for freedom was just beginning. During the first winter, half the Pilgrims, including Bradford's own wife, Died of either starvation, sickness, or exposure. When spring finally came, Indians taught the settlers how to plant corn, fish for cod, and skin beavers for coats. Life improved for the pilgrims, but they did not yet prosper. And this is important to understand because this is where modern American history lessons often end. Thanksgiving is actually explained in some textbooks as a holiday for which the pilgrims gave thanks to the Indians for saving their lives, rather than as a devout expression of gratitude grounded in the tradition of both the Old and New Testaments. Here's the part that's been omitted.
1: What a great tease as we head into the final break of the show. We will play the remainder of The Truth About Thanksgiving, the last, oh, five and a half minutes or so, virtually uninterrupted when we return here on 710 KNUS. That'll pump a little life back into these old bones. Led Zeppelin. But we do want to finish our tribute to Irene Cara, who passed away today, 63, no cause of death that's been released. And every time this is happening now, it causes me to wonder, were they vaxxed? But man, oh man, in her prime. Didn't we all feel that way? Young and going to live forever. All right, I feel better. (laughs) I feel better. I uh just want to remind you, Stefan Tubbs will be back on monday he's been battling the r s v virus, and uh we talked about it on the Stefan Tubbs show with his permission, so it 's no big secret, but uh, he took the extra time over the holiday weekend to make sure he was fit as a fiddle. He will be back Monday and tomorrow night at four p m the historic backbone radio hosted by the brilliant and my good friend, Dr. Matt Dunn. So never any good reason to change the channel here around 710 canus. Before we wrap up the Rush Limbaugh truth about Thanksgiving, do you remember this song? When you're
2: alone
0: and life is making you lonely
1: One of those songs that I, I just, words, you know, know the, the words, can noise sing noise. the melody, and, and uh, uh, I think it was 1964, so I was five years old. When you hear a song you like at that age, it gets implanted. But here's what Irene Kara did with that very same song. Oh,
0: life is you you can always go.
1: Start it over. When
0: you're alone, life is making
1: I don't know. I'm sorry. I like the classics. When you're alone, yeah, definitely. That's my favorite. But Irene Cara, rest in peace. Okay, the last few clips of this uh, Rush Limbaugh, the truth about Thanksgiving. So very important to know.
4: The original contract the Pilgrims had entered into with their merchant sponsors in London called for everything they produced to go into a common store. And each member of the community was entitled to one common share. All of the land that they cleared and the houses they built belonged to the community as well. And they were going to distribute it equally. All the land they cleared, the houses they built, belonged to the community. Nobody owned anything. They just had a share in it. It was a commune. It was the forerunner to the communes we saw in the 60s and 70s out in California. And it was complete with organic vegetables, even, just like the communes of today are.
1: There's no question it was organic vegetables. I'm not sure why Rush got hung up on the vegetables. Of course they were organic in the 17th early 17th century. There weren't pesticides going on back then, but that that is kind of funny, but interesting, isn't it, that uh, the original commune, the 60s hippies in the US thought that they were, you know, brand new. We're going to figure out this perfect way to live. And the Pilgrims came over with this plan to make everything equal. And it didn't quite work. Bradford, who had become the new governor of the
4: colony, recognized that this form of collectivism was as costly and destructive to the Pilgrims as that first harsh winter, which had taken so many lives. He decided to take bold action. Bradford assigned a plot of land to each family to work and manage thus turning loose the power in the marketplace. Long before Karl Marx was even born, the pilgrims had discovered and experimented with what could only be described as socialism. And what happened? It didn't work. They nearly starved. It never has worked. What Bradford and his community found was that the most creative and industrious people had no incentive to work any harder than anybody else unless they could utilize the power of personal motivation. But while most of the rest of the world has been experimenting with socialism for well over 100 years, trying to refine it, perfect it, and reinvent it, the pilgrims decided early on to scrap it permanently. What Bradford wrote about this social experiment should be in every school child's history lesson, if it were... We might prevent such needless suffering in the future, such as that we are enduring now. The experience that we had in this common course and condition, this is Bradford, the experience we had in this common course and condition, tired or tried some to years, that by taking away property and bringing community into a commonwealth would make them happy and flourishing, as if they were wiser than God, Bradford wrote. For this community, so far as it was, was found to breed much confusion and discontent and retard much employment that would have been to their benefit and comfort. For young men that were most able and fit for labor and service did repine that they should spend their time and strength to work for other men's wives and children without being paid for it. That was thought injustice. Why should you work for other people when you can't work for yourself? What's the point? That's what he was saying. The pilgrims found that people could not be expected to do their best work without incentive.
1: Huh? Who knew <laughs> human nature, it simply doesn't change, but just contrast this story based on the actual writings of the, of the governor, the man who brought the pilgrims over. Uh, he kept detailed journals about their plans, their thoughts, their decisions, the lives, the deaths. And, uh, Con- contrast that to just the evil bigoted nonsense that we heard from joy reed on mslsd so what did bradford's community try
4: next they unharnished the power of good old free enterprise by invoking the undergirding capitalistic principle of private property Every family was assigned its own plot of land to work and permitted to market its own crops and products. What was the result? Bradford wrote, this had very good success, for it made all hands industrious, so as much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been. Is it possible that supply-side economics could have existed before the 1980s? Yes, Read the story of Joseph and Pharaoh in Genesis 41. Following Joseph's suggestion, Pharaoh reduced the tax on Egyptians to 20% during the seven years of plenty, and the earth brought forth in heaps. Well, in no time, the pilgrims found that they had more food than they could eat themselves.
1: Yeah, a little bit of Reaganomics back in the uh, early 17th century. Simply fascinating. Rush wraps up the story in the next minute and a half with a conclusion that you really need to let sink in. Now
4: this, this is where it gets really good. If you're laboring under the misconception that I was, as I was taught in school, they set up trading posts. They exchanged goods with the Indians. The profits allowed them to pay off their debts to the merchants in London. And the success and the prosperity of the Plymouth settlement attracted more Europeans and began what came to be known as the Great Puritan Migration. But this story stops when the Indians taught the newly arrived suffering and socialism pilgrims how to plant corn and fish for cod. That's where the original Thanksgiving story stops. The story basically doesn't even begin there. The real story of Thanksgiving is William Bradford giving thanks to God for the guidance and the inspiration to set up a thriving colony that socialism caused near starvation. The bounty was shared with the Indians. They did sit down. They did have free-range turkey and organic vegetables, but it wasn't the Indians who saved the day. It was capitalism in scripture which saved the day, as acknowledged by George Washington in his first Thanksgiving proclamation in 1789.
1: Isn't that fun just to hear Rush Limbaugh go on a little bit and tell a great story the, the only the way he can, and then to, to think about the actual truth about Thanksgiving ver- versus the privileged, bigoted, ideological liar, Joy Reid, who simply tries to create an image of the white man coming over and killing off the weaker indigenous people and and keeping black people enslaved and white supremacy you you probably can't find 10,000 white supremacists in a country of 300 million I, the the numbers have to be infinitesimal and i you know i forgot all about the meeting that uh, that uh, Kanye West put together with Donald Trump and Nick Fuentes I'd like to learn more about that, but it seems to me like that was kind of a setup from Kanye because Trump invited this, you know, kind of troubled guy out who's going through a tough patch thinking about running for president, uh, just him. And apparently Kanye brought Nick Fuentes, who is a very controversial figure. I don't know anything about him. I know Michelle Malkin defends his right to speak, uh, but I've never met him, never listened to him. Um, But really kind of an ambush on Donald Trump. And now the media has gone entirely into another tizzy. Ah, we got him this time. You know, elections two years away, probably be an old, tired story by then. But I'd be very interested just hear The other side of that story, what really went on at that dinner? Uh, Did Donald Trump somehow embrace a Nick Fuentes? I will bet you... A thousand of Luis Gonzalez's dollars that he did not. And uh, Luis said he'd put up the stake. So if anybody wants to take me up on that, you know how to get a hold of us. I hear the music in the background not a minute too soon because um, I don't know if the tryptophan just kicked in late, but uh, I'm ready to go home. I hope you'll stick around the uh, nighttime programming here especially starting at 8 o'clock, gets very, very interesting. Of course, Dr. Matt Dunn tomorrow, 4 to 7, with Backbone Radio. I'm Randy Corcoran. Always remember, please never, ever forget, God loves you. So do I. Embrace your family. Embrace your friends. Remember, this is the Thanksgiving weekend. And bottom line is this.
4: I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely Nobody.